Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, May 31st. With the election now behind us, we take a look at the relationship between Alberta and our provincial neighbours, specifically what a majority UCP government means for the rest of Canada. We tackle the topic with Sam Routley, PhD student from the Department of Political Science at Western University. Former Conservative Party of Canada leader Aaron O'Toole has come out saying that his party was the target of voter suppression by China in the 2021 federal election. We hear details surrounding these allegations from Christian Loyprecht, professor at the Royal Military College and editor of the Canadian Military Journal. As Jewish Heritage Month comes to a close, we learn about the significance of the month and how Jewish Calgarians celebrate the culture during this time. We speak with Rabbi Menachem Matasov. It's no secret that Danielle Smith, through her political career, has not been afraid to pick a fight with the federal government. And Premier Smith even took aim at the Prime Minister in her victory speech on Monday night. Joining us to chat about what this UCP win means for the rest of Canada is Sam Routley, a PhD student at Western University who did his graduate work on Alberta politics. Good morning to you, Sam. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Sam, what are the implications of the Alberta election for the province's relationship with the federal government and its significance uh, for Canada? Well, I think um, Smith's win was definitely, a, a, I think, a good sign for, for many conservatives in the country um, who are wanting to kind of uh, push back against the current Liberal government. But, I mean, more broadly, um, it means that Smith might maintain this kind of uh, confrontational stance against the federal government, um, you know, looking towards advancing things like, um, you know, greater uh, natural resource development and even also pushing back against kind of federal kind of interventions in, in what would be considered kind of more provincial jurisdiction. Sam, we've seen provinces band together when it comes to health care, sort of taking it up against the federal government. So if Danielle Smith succeeds in some of her other demands, do you see provinces sort of stepping up with their own, much like they did band together when it came to health care? Yeah, I mean, I think it ultimately um, depends on the province, because I think while some there's there's certainly some movement in in Saskatchewan, for example, towards, towards this end, whereas you know, in a, in a province more like Ontario, uh, that's not only more aligned with the federal government, but I think benefits from these more, you know, federal programs like the CPP, um, you'll see them more willing to kind of cooperate with the federal government. But I mean, um, exactly how Smith is going to kind of balance this out in the in the future is, is unclear, because while she kind of was elected leader on this on this more kind of populist, desire to confront the federal government through something like the Sovereignty Act. Um, you know, moving more into the provincial election, I think she tried to kind of take this more moderate conventional stance, which, I mean, will entail certain uh, rhetorical confrontation, but I think whether or not it will actually, the extent to which it will shake things up is, is, is still in the air. In your opinion, Sam, what can we anticipate Alberta will do to balance its focus on the energy industry, including oil and gas, with the environmental considerations, particularly in relation to climate policy and the clash with the federal government's sustainable jobs plan? What do you think we can see there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a balancing act because while I think a lot of uh, industry leaders and also government leaders are, are looking towards uh, transitioning to this kind of renewable future, um, a lot of the province's livelihood, ultimately, its kind of bottom end is still tied together with, with the oil sector. Um, Smith has, has committed 
to producing more of these government in- investments in, in infrastructure development, uh, which kind of runs counter to a lot of the initiatives uh, the federal government is, is taking towards pursuing a more green energy future. So, I mean, it it's definitely a, a balancing act, and I think it's you'll you'll see this kind of distinction between kind of these short-term efforts that'll become apparent very early on from these more long-term uh, changes that'll that'll play out over the course of, of several years. Going back to what you mentioned a little bit earlier about you know Alberta's relationship with the feds, should Danielle Smith be a little more confrontational with the prime minister when it comes to the energy industry, particularly? You know that it is something that it it had a, a popular. Um, it was attractive to Albertans during this election. Do you think there's a little bit more anger in the province of Alberta right now than what we might see across the country in terms of, of politics and the rhetoric, et cetera? I mean, it's it's hard to tell. And, and I think it's it's you have to distinguish between uh, what kind of the average Albertan is feeling compared to what a sort of conservative partisan Albertan is feeling. Because I think while this this resentment against the federal government, this this prevailing sense of kind of Western or Albertan alienation is still very salient to a lot of conservatives in Alberta. A lot of the data and a lot of the, the kind of behavior from this past election um, seems more so to indicate that that, that this isn't uh, top of mind for, for the average Albertan, that they're more concerned with the sort of immediate affordability issues of, of health care, of housing prices, and, and, and so forth. Uh, that, that really all Canadians are, are preoccupied with. And I mean, insofar as oil development affects that, I think they're, they'll be invested. But I mean, in terms of kind of a day-to-day politics, I think in some sense, they, they sort of, it sort of lacks the salience and it will continue to decrease going forward, it seems, if, if these kind of current trends continue. Sam, you know, lobby groups are nothing new in politics, but a very unique group called Take Back Alberta has been in Danielle Smith's corner throughout the election campaign and until the day she was elected, you know, on Monday night. Should Albertans be concerned about a group like this or will a strong opposition uh, such as the NDP with their biggest opposition, you know, in the history of the province uh, be enough to, to, to kind of right the ship and ensure that there's no interference or influence? I mean, if you're looking just at the PC caucus itself, I mean, the fact that they were you know, shut out of Edmonton and they lost quite a lot of seats in Calgary, uh, kind of shifts power towards rural riding, shifts, shifts kind of her caucus rightward, uh, which kind of gives this, this group some, some more influence. And to that end, you know, while the NDP as a, as a strong opposition can, can kind of uh, contribute a lot of speaking, can, can contribute a lot of research, can, can kind of maintain that critical eye, I, I think ultimately it's, it's a matter of of Smith's leadership and, and really kind of where the caucus sides because even, I mean, it's still unclear exactly what, what sort of direction Smith goes in, whether we're talking a more uh, populist kind of direction that she became leader on or, or the more moderate direction mm-hmm. that she won the election on. And I mean, her caucus could still kind of push back against either, either direction as a kind of led by these kind of external influences. Since you are an expert in Alberta politics, I'll ask you this. We know what happened to the former leader of the United Conservative Party, Jason Kenney, uh, removed with discontent within the party. Do you think that Danielle Smith can hold on for four years? Do you think that she has that in her? Or is there just a whole lot going on within the party itself that they may, you know, eat the leader from inside again? I mean, we're hearing rumors of it already, even just prior to the election. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of short answer is I'm not 
totally sure. I mean, because on one hand, like I said, you have a lot of these tensions uh, within the caucus, um, particularly between these more uh, rural conservative interests and these and these kind of more um, professional moderate interests, kind of more so from the cities, right? The latter of which is interested in, in kind of in, in the party kind of pursuing more more appeals to these kind of more urban uh, residents. So, but other than that, I mean, if you're looking at some of the stuff that ultimately undid Kenny, like uh, a set of scandals or even kind of economic uh, problems, none of that is seemingly on the, on the horizon, right? That the, the province is in a pretty good economic position. And I mean, um, presumably uh, Smith will kind of avoid, you know, certain scandals or, 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 allegations of corruption or, or incompetence, right? At least at least minimize them, which could kind of give her more leverage over her caucus with, you know, contrasting from kind of the experience of her predecessors. One last question, one last uh, note, one last inquiry from us, mm-hmm. Sam, and that is you are a PhD student uh, focusing on political science at Western University. You're doing your graduate work on Alberta politics. So why the interest in, uh, in Alberta politics uh, for you, Sam? I mean, what's interesting about this election this year is is how it contrasts uh, considerably from from the province's history. So the province is kind of noted for having these this period of uh, one party dominance, right? Where where you have uh, one party that's in power for an incredibly long time, alongside this very fragmented opposition. You know, opposition parties that they not only lose support really quickly, but they're unable to kind of mount these challenges. And I think that's really changed because. Not only do you have a weaker conservative party, but you have a very strong, stable, secure opposition party in the in the NDP, and it means that rather than this kind of one party dominating by capturing the support of most of the province, you actually have most of the province's residents polarizing along these right left lines, uh, which has never really been seen in Alberta, and, and, it, and it shows, I think, and this is what's really interesting about it, right? Is, is this question of what's changed about the province, where it's going, and, and really whether or not this distinctive Albertan identity, right, this distinctive Albertan way of doing politics is kind of now history, right? That is Alberta becoming more like Canada, really. Fascinating. We'll be seeing how things break down. Thank you for your thoughts this morning. Really appreciate your time, Sam. Yeah, thanks for me. Thank you, Sam Routley, PhD student in political science at Western University. Last week, government-appointed Special Rapporteur David Johnson recommended that the government not hold a public inquiry into foreign interference. Opposition parties still pushing for that inquiry despite the recommendation. Joining us with the latest is Christian Loypresh, a professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, as well as editor of the Canadian Military Journal. Good morning to you, Professor Loypresh. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Sue. My pleasure. Uh, David Johnson's recommendation to not hold an inquiry didn't sit well, obviously, with Canadians and with the opposition parties. We're seeing this week Aaron O'Toole speaking out about interference within his party in the 2021 election. How factual do we think this claim is? Do we have backup to show that this actually and truly did happen? Well, so it appears that the report was primarily targeted at trying to discredit and disavow the reporting in the media on this particular issue rather than a comprehensive assessment of all the available evidence. And so really what uh, the report uh, could have done is to restore Canadians' trust and confidence in their electoral system to provide a broad assessment as to whether the government has taken sufficiently robust action uh, to protect the integrity that uh, Canadians ultimately need to have 
in that system. Um, but uh, it appears that that is not how Mr. Johnson understood his mandate. And of course, the fact that Mr. Johnson did not seek the consensus with opposition parties on either his appointment or his mandate ensured that the outcome would be effectively uh, a highly partisan and political exercise. O'Toole has been outspoken about foreign interference for years. So, so why is this information about an attack on his party just coming out now? Yes, and of course, that is one of the puzzles. As Mr. O'Toole has pointed out on his own blog, uh, his party was given two days' notice by the Johnston team to meet with him. Um, and even though Mr. O'Toole, by his own account, had prepared an extensive dossier to present to Mr. Johnston, when Mr. Johnston met with him, he apprised Mr. O'Toole that the report was effectively already in translation. This is, of course, somewhat puzzling because you would think in this sort of investigation, since the Conservatives believe to be the themselves to be the primary, if you want to say in quotation marks, victim mm -hmm. um, of electoral interference, you would think that as an investigator, the first thing you might do is actually talk to that victim, get their statements, and then try to understand, try to see whether you can corroborate the claims uh, that are being made, or at least scrutinize and perhaps falsify those claims with the evidence available. Uh, but it appears that the focus was on discounting the narrative that uh, in, in public media reporting, rather than to engaging with the concerns raised. Uh, by Her Majesty's, His Majesty's loyal official opposition. Hmm. Do you think, is there any chance that Johnson's recommendation might be dismissed by the federal government and we might actually still see a public inquiry? Um, at this point, the only way where I think we're likely to see a public inquiry is if uh, uh, the opposition parties decide to make this a matter of confidence, uh, at which point uh, then the prime minister has the option of either calling an inquiry uh, or essentially holding an election over um, uh, over the matter of foreign interference. Uh, but it appears that uh, since the NDP on the one hand calls for public inquiry, uh, but is trying to have it both ways, but also saying that uh, it doesn't want to have an election uh, until systems are more robust. And even though the prime minister has been eschewing uh, the options on the table by both the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians and their report since 2019, as well as options laid out by his own minister, Dominic LeBlanc, in his report, um, it uh, appears that at this point we're unlikely to have an inquiry on the one hand, but we're also unlikely to have uh, a more robust uh, system in place before the next federal election is called. Speaking with Christian Loy Presht, professor at the military, Royal Military College in Queen's University and editor of the Canadian Military Journal. Uh, Christian, as we've heard over the past few months or maybe in the past few years, uh, China's interest in, in uh, other countries uh, not unique to Canada and the interference not unique to Canada. But what are some of the other countries doing to kind of counter uh, this type of interference? Yeah, and I think that's an important question because we have, of course, seen that uh, measures can be put in place to contain uh, interference and to deter interference, uh, not just in your democratic institutions, but your political institutions more broadly, uh, your economy, your diplomatic institutions, um, and sort of the general institutions that support the democratic way of life that we've all come to cherish, all of which, of course, under systematic attack through raison activities. Uh, 
by our adversaries. Uh, in Australia, for instance, so foreign um, agent registry is in and of itself uh, no silver bullet, but uh, it has led to um, significant changes in activity in Australia. Uh, it also sets a threshold to investigate. In Canada, for instance, we haven't even defined what foreign interference means. We have no thresholds for foreign interference, for subversion and for subterfuge, uh, neither in terms of the thresholds for investigations, nor in terms of uh, the consequences for this type of activity. So if you don't define it, on the one hand, it's going to be very difficult for the agencies to investigate. And of course, it means the adversary continue, continue to act with impunity um, because they know on the one hand, there's no investigation. On, on the other hand, uh, there's likely not going to be any penalties uh, for activity that, uh, at least on the surface of it, based on the reporting we have, uh, is not only illegal, but in parts criminal. Christian, you are a professor at the Royal Military College. When we talk about foreign interference, what is it exactly that we are afraid of here? So it is activities that ultimately... So there's lots of foreign interference in our democratic process um, by a host of countries that, for instance, mobilize their diaspora groups or so forth. You'll have seen, for instance, intimidation by Iran um, of uh, the Iranian diaspora, including in Alberta, for speaking out and being critical of Iran. Um, but what we are talking about here is deliberate attempts to manipulate both public opinion and our democratic, political and electoral processes. So in this case, what makes um, uh, the activity by the United Front Work Department, which is to say the Communist Parties of China's um, foreign agent wing, if you want, uh, so different, is they are prepared to engage in activity that under own legislation is clearly illegal um, and likely also criminal in terms of the measures to which it is resorting for the specific purpose of affecting the outcomes of our government. And so these activities are effectively constraining the ability of Canada to form a sovereign democratic, uh, to, to have a sovereign democratic decision-making processes in place, because it means that decisions are being made are not those decided on by the uh, electoral processes and the legitimately elected uh, representatives of the Canadian people, but rather those as manipulated by a hostile foreign power. Mm. A super timely topic. Thanks for your time this morning, Christian. We appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you. It's Christian Loy Presht, professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University and editor of the Canadian Military Journal. Jewish Heritage Month, celebrated throughout May, is an opportunity to celebrate the contributions that Jewish Canadians have made to this country. During the month, we recognize the bravery of Jewish communities throughout history. And joining us with some more details to talk about it this morning is Rabbi Menachem Matasov. Good morning to you, Rabbi. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Sue. Good morning, Andy. Thank you. Rabbi, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, in your view, why we should be and why we are celebrating when we talk about Jewish Heritage Month? Well, this was established by the federal government, Canadian government, and, uh, in 2018 as a month to uh, reflect, to uh, appreciate the, the different cultures and different um, uh, ethnics and different religions, how everyone is contributing together to make uh, our country, our world, but our country in particular, uh, the beautiful country, Canada, that, is, that we live in. And, um, and nothing happens on its own. 
it's people who are making who are who are making everything um, uh, successful and uh, bright, and um, and uh, and the Jewish uh, community in Canada is not any less than anyone else. Uh, they, uh, we have contributed. We're continuing to continue uh, to, co- to continue to contribute to the um, to the flourishing um, uh, country that we live in, and we should celebrate and be proud of it. Uh, Rabbi, you know, you talked about it being across the nation, Jewish Heritage Month across Canada. Uh, Bringing it back to the local aspect, Rabbi, just how big of a community, a Jewish community, do we have in our city? Official numbers are, uh, I think, about uh, 15,000, 16,000. I say there is much more because many people do not um, not affiliate officially. Uh, and perhaps the, the 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 celebration of the Jewish the May of the, uh, the, uh, the of uh, Judaism should bring people out of uh, the hiding and people more and more people should affiliate and connect and display their their Judaism. I would say we're about twenty uh, about twenty thousand people in our province. And, and Rabbi, a very active Jewish community, you know, in the Calgary area, but across the province too. I love that. You know, and it's not not just working for and with the Jewish community, but for the community as a whole. That's what I love. And I've done a lot of work with you and the organization. And I think that's what's important to note here too. 100%. I mean, again, I mean, we're, uh, it's a Jewish law uh, that, that dates back uh, over 2,000 years. Wherever you live, you need to uh, to uh, to follow to support the uh, the law, the government, to the society. I mean, we uh, we are in it together. <laughs> we live on the same streets and in the same uh, and and we go to the same grocery stores, in uh, the same shopping malls. Of course, we have to uh, we have to contribute, and everyone is contributing at their at their way, in a Jewish way and in and in uh, in, in regular life. But, uh, of course, uh, 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 why anything different? <laughs> Rabbi, before we let you go, if I want to learn more about the Jewish uh, culture, uh, traditions, maybe even the food, you know me, <laughs> Rabbi, uh, is there a resource, and, and how can I reach out? Oh, um, I call it Rabbi Google. Uh, <laughs> you Google, uh, Google Jew, Judaism, Jewish food, Jewish food, uh, Jewish culture, Jewish religion. Uh, of course, the, be- the best rabbi in the Google world is Chabad of Alberta, ChabadAlberta.org. <laughs> rabbi, I'm going to bring Andy out to our next event because he will uh, he'll be in heaven with all the food that uh, is put out for everybody to enjoy. Thank you so much for your of time course. and thanks for helping us understand a little bit more and celebrate Jewish Heritage Month. Thank you. And while we're finishing the Jewish Heritage Month, it doesn't mean that uh, that celebrating Judaism is celebrating who we are. And on the contrary, it's only a refresher, mm-hmm. uh, refreshes our minds to uh, to do it throughout the year. Year round. Thank you very much. Have a very good day and good month. Thank you so much. That is Rabbi Menachem Matasov.